Hi, everyone. So good to be here with you today. It's another great day to study God's Word. Isn't it? Amen. We are going to look at a very important path today, and I want to just give you a heads up. I'm going to be adding some details from Matthew's study from some of the other Gospels, so I just don't want you to think I'm just making things up. <laughs> if you wonder, well, what's that about? I started thinking about paths when I was working on this, and... Um, different paths I've taken in my life. I've walked a lot of paths in Colorado, which is a joy. And I was remembering a time when our kids, Cassie and Tyler, were younger. We were on a hike through the mountain on a path, and, and Ted, my husband, was leading. He had his backpack on, and he's telling us, come on. And, and my kids were old enough to figure out this fun trick. They began picking up rocks along the path. And I'm not talking about stones. I'm talking about rocks. And they would, one of them would distract Ted, and the other one would drop the rock into Ted's backpack. <laughs> so they did this all the way up the mountain. And then when we stopped for lunch, you know, Ted had a backpack full of rocks, and he'd been saying all along the way, my backpack is really heavy. So it was great. We still talk about it. In our study today, Christ is walking a path that will lead him to the cross. He was carrying a very heavy burden of another kind. His path was a bitter path. It was filled with bitter people. And the plots and the betrayal and the lies and the hatred and the greed that goes along with that. And none of it came as a surprise to Jesus. His path had been mapped out by Old Testament prophets many years before, but most importantly, his path had been designed by his Father, his Heavenly Father. And now that Passover was coming, it was time for Jesus to take that step onto that path to the cross. So on Wednesday, we saw last week that he was talking a lot about the end times. Now it's Wednesday, and he's going to be talking to the disciples about his end times at Passover. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover's coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Knowing that he was the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus knew that Passover marked his last days on earth. And if you remember, that's how he was introduced to the earth. As John the Baptist looked and showed everyone around the river to say, look, behold, it's the lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. And Peter would even write about it one day later. I want to throw that in there because we get real down on Peter later. So, look on your verse sheet what Peter would write. He wanted to remind the Jews about this. Knowing that you were trans, uh, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. I can't imagine how Jesus' words that he would be killed in two days hit the hearts of the disciples as they think about how they've been doing life 
for three years with this unbelievable man that they loved. He had talked about his death often, but this was a firm prophecy from this man they loved that in two days he would be on a cross. While Jesus is prophesying about this, his enemies are plotting against him. And this would fulfill what the prophets knew to be true, that Jesus would not try to stop this plot. Look at Psalm 2-2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So here's a room, and here's a people bent on killing a man who has brought healing and hope to the Jews, who has taught them about God and how to truly know him. And standing prominent in the middle of the room is the Jewish high priest named Caiaphas. Every time you see his name mentioned in scripture, he's out for the destruction of Jesus. He held the honored position that Moses' brother Aaron first held, an honored position of high priest. It was honored because a high priest sought God on behalf of the people. And so when we look into this room, we see how that position of high priest has just deteriorated. It's not what it had been. He doesn't have really the good of the people in mind like Aaron did. None of the religious leaders in that room had the good of the people in mind. They had the good of themselves in mind. Their power, their control, their prestige was all being threatened by this Jesus of Nazareth. And they had a low opinion of God's people the people of Israel that God loved and called his own, the people they were supposed to shepherd. Listen to their words earlier when there was another occasion where they tried to arrest Jesus. Look on your verse sheet, John 7. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's their view of their sheep. Accursed, meaning ignorant and damned. That's their view of the people. What could they know? So we must kill Jesus. But they decided they had to be subtle and tricky about it. Jerusalem would have been filled with visitors at this time. All the pilgrims coming from around to celebrate Passover. It was an eight-day event that involved the Feast of Unleavened Bread, beginning with the Passover. So they said, we'll, we'll plot to, to dispose of Jesus when these festivities are over. But if you notice what I read, this gives us some insight into their view of the sacred Passover. It was not sacred to them. The religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus after Passover, not because they had any regard for Passover, 
not because it had any kind of holy specialness in their heart, but because they didn't want to cause an uproar with the people. That was their only reason. But their timing was not God's timing. God wanted Christ to be sacrificed during the Passover, not afterwards. And so God would advance his timetable, and he would use Judas's cold heart to do it, which we will see in a minute. So never were the Jews in charge of the path to the cross. Never were those religious leaders that hated and plotted in charge of the destiny of Jesus Christ. In every way, it was the plans of God that would be accomplished. So the enemies of God can plot against him, but the plans of God are going to always prevail. Look what Proverbs 19 says. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And this is a promise for us to remember when we're tempted to believe that somehow man can change the purposes of God. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that. He can't. So we can trust. He's greater than anyone who appears to be great. He is greater. There was one bright spot on the dark path that Jesus walked. It happened in the town of Bethany. And Bethany was only a mile and a half away from Jerusalem, and that's why Jesus could come and go so much. And I also gave you a diagram that you might want to just set where you can glance down at it while I'm talking. And next week while Amy's talking, if you want to chart the different places that Jesus went like we're doing today, Amy will be also doing that um, next week. This is his path. If you look at that diagram on the far right, you'll see the road from Bethany, that mile and a half road. This is where Jesus is right now. And in the bottom left, you'll see where they came and had um, their last Passover together, just so you have a feel. In between, you'll see all the other places. It seems Jesus was spending his nights in Bethany, and uh, during the days he would be in Jerusalem, but now he's in Bethany. Let's look at, at verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you. You will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, I want to picture this scene. We're in Simon's home. Simon the leper. What? Wait a minute. Nobody be eating dinner with a leper. A leper wasn't even allowed to live in the city, wasn't allowed to even socialize. So we can decide here that this was a leper that had been healed by the love and touch of Jesus Christ. And he's having a dinner party. Most likely Jesus was reclining at this table with Simon, who was a leper, and his disciples around him. And then we continue to look around and we notice Mary 
standing very near Jesus. Only a week earlier, Mary and her sister Martha, who were great friends of Jesus, along with their brother Lazarus, they watched their brother die, even though they'd been begging Jesus to come heal him. But Jesus had bigger plans. Four days after he died, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It was the talk of the town, and it made its way even into Jerusalem, and some of those people that heard it would have been the ones celebrating at the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem. It was unlike any miracle ever done before. A man bound and wrapped in a tomb for four days, walking out simply from the command of Jesus Christ. Now, He's being honored. He's at a table with Jesus for this dinner party. And Martha was serving. And when I was working on this lesson, uh, thinking about the suffering of Christ this, this week and the people that were so cruel, I really got so happy in my heart to think he had this dinner with people who loved him, people who... He had healed and meant so much in his life. I'm so glad. I never really thought about it that way before. But yay that Jesus had this moment with these people. Mary came prepared to literally pour her praise on Jesus at this special party. In her hands, she carried a very expensive alabaster jar, which would have been a fine marble made from Egypt. It would store very costly perfumes. Let me tell you how costly this perfume was. It was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. She poured this nard, this pure nard, this perfumed ointment over Jesus' head. We also know she poured it over his feet. She bent down before him, wiped it with her hair off of his feet. And the disciples stared in shock while this was going on. They were angry. They were indignant. In another gospel, we realize it seems to be Judas, who's probably the instigator with this criticism. This money could have been given to the poor. Talk about a party pooper. <laughs> what a horrible thing to do. Now, here's what we learn. Judas was the treasurer for the disciples. He held the money bag. John says he was a thief. He used to steal money out of the money bag. He didn't care about the poor at all, is what John teaches us. But the perfume's fragrance spoke to Jesus not of waste, but of Mary's lavish worship. What a perfect preparation for his burial. Because the Jews, it was their custom to anoint bodies with fragrant spices. But also, we learned that Mary had to break this expensive alabaster jar in order to get the perfume out and anoint Jesus with fragrance. And this sacrificial act of hers foreshadowed a much greater sacrificial act of Christ's broken body that would be a wonderful fragrance to his Father in heaven from the cross. Look at Ephesians 5. 
Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So picture you being Mary. What would you feel like all of a sudden hearing the disciples? All getting angry about what you're doing. And here you are loving Christ. You know, some people believe that when Mary looked across the table, she could look into Jesus' eyes and see the shadow of the cross. Understand he was about to have, uh, give himself as a huge sacrifice for man. Something that the disciples really didn't see. Jesus put a stop to their critical spirits. You know, once before, if you remember the story, Jesus commended Mary because she was sitting in her home at the feet of Christ and listening to his words and adoring him. And so here, for the second time, he commends Mary for her worship and for her adoration. She has chosen the good portion once again. No gift is too great in response to a love so great as Christ's love for us. You know, I don't know what you guys think of this song, but at Christmas, my favorite song is Little Drummer Boy. And most of you probably think, oh, I can't stand that song. They, they do play it too much, I will say that. <laughs> I just love picturing it. I love picturing that little drummer boy saying, what can I give him? I'll give him my best. I'll play my drum for him. Mary gave him her best. Because she understood his love and the coming sacrifice. And Jesus prophesied this story would be told in memory of her. Whenever the gospel was told, here we are telling it today, over 2,000 years later. The higher priority than any earthly ministry is worship rendered to Jesus. It is a sweet aroma that reaches to the heavens, and Jesus is pleased with it. The path is now going uh, in a minute towards Jerusalem. But, you know, first, Judas' anger over the loss of this money or the fact that Jesus accepted this extravagant praise from Mary, pushed Judas over the edge. Seems the next thing he did was put on his fastest sandals and ran that mile and a half back to Jerusalem to betray Jesus. And Luke tells us this is the time when Satan entered Judas. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas's allegiance to Jesus depended on what he thought Jesus could do for the Jews. He wanted Jesus just to rule the Jews, break the Roman chains on Israel, but he was tired of waiting. So he told the Jews, I'm going to help you capture Jesus, and I'll do it for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, showing how little Judas valued Jesus. Contrast that with what Mary did, the cost of Mary's value of Jesus. 
So Judas's treachery displayed his greed and his lack of understanding of who Jesus really was. And this meeting of Judas was prophetic. 30 pieces of silver was the same price of the rejected shepherd in Zechariah. Look on your verse sheet. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And next week, we're going to see how Judas did that very thing. Here he accepts it. Soon he will throw it down. I think that uh, this is a warning for us. Sometimes we try to make Jesus what we want him to be. And when we do that, we are undervaluing him. And it's a betrayal to who he really is. Sometimes we think, God just wants me to be happy. A betrayal to who God really is. God doesn't really love me. A betrayal to who God really is. Now it's Thursday. Jesus' path to the cross has led him to enter Jerusalem. This is the last time he will do that. This is the day that the Passover lambs would be sacrificed. And Luke tells us when these days of his ascension were drawing near, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. His disciples didn't want him to go. He was determined. He had deliberate intentions to eat the final Passover with his disciples. In fact, he said, I will keep the Passover, which translated with the verb means, I am to keep the Passover. That's the plan, and I'm going to do it. Because commemorated at every Passover was Israel's redemption from Egypt. And this event foreshadowed the redemption that Christ was about to offer through his blood. So he wanted to be at Passover and be with his disciples before he died. Now he had a plan, though, to stay undercover so no one would try to capture him, so Judas wouldn't be able to find him, not knowing where he would be, so that uh, he would be in the right place and be able to celebrate. He didn't want to be betrayed too early. So he sent Peter and John to find a certain man in the city, and he said he'd be carrying a pitcher of water. Again, another example throughout the book of Matthew where we see the omniscience of Jesus Christ. Who could know that? Jesus probably knew the man, but that he would be carrying a pot of water on his head at that time. Only God would know that. And this was a chore that women normally did. So the man would stand out so Peter and John could find him. It seems like they didn't know him. But he was probably a Christ follower who would be eager to have the teacher, the rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, stay in his home for Passover. They told him, Jesus, we'll keep the Passover at your home. And so he agreed and then they ran out to get the preparations ready. It probably took them most of the day, Peter and John, to get the food and everything they needed to celebrate this. And we read that Jesus transformed the last Passover into the first observance of the Lord's Supper. And I want you to get that painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Lord's Supper out of your brains. That's just what we have. I have to tell you this fast story. I got to go on a tour with Ted and some wonderful people from the church in Italy. It was our day we were going to see the Last Supper. 
but we stopped in this town and our bus driver said, don't be late because we'll lose our place on the tour. And we all were out and I happened to be at the group of people that thought we just had to stop at McDonald's. <laughs> and, and this is true because I definitely make a lot of mistakes. But at this time I was like, ah, hurry, hurry everyone. And everybody just took their time, the people that we were with. And sure enough, we went to the bus, and they were waiting with the engine running because we were about to miss our tour of the Last Supper. And I thought, I almost seen, missed seeing the Last Supper because of a cheeseburger. <laughs> it would have been horrible, but we did make it. Yay. Okay, they didn't sit at tables and chairs like the painting shows. They reclined around the floor with rugs where the food was. They laid on one elbow, propping their head up, which you can see why they needed to have their feet washed, because there was somebody else <laughs> lying right there. That's how they ate. That's how they fellowshiped with each other. But while they were eating, Jesus ruined the disciples' dinner with this one sentence, one of you will betray me. Years before, God had commanded Moses about the first sacrificial Passover lamb. You shall eat it with bitter herbs. Well, tonight, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Tonight, the bitter herbs is betrayal. And he throws that sentence out there. This was a staggering blow to the disciples. And here's a high point, though, for the disciples. They don't point fingers at each other. You know how when you're in church and you hear a sermon and you think, if only so-and-so could be hearing this. Do you ever do that? I love that they didn't do that. They knew their inner hearts. They knew that they had sins. And they began to be so upset and sorrowful. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? First, Jesus makes it clear, no man's really going to cause my death. I'm going to go as God planned, as the prophets said I would. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah said, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But then Jesus says, but it would be better if the man had never been born that's going to betray me. Even after hearing these consequences of what he's about to do, and even though he's given an opportunity here to repent, Judas responds with a fake innocence that seems to be without sorrow. Is it I, Rabbi? In his question, we see his true heart. He doesn't call Jesus his Lord. He calls him a rabbi because Jesus was not Judas's Lord. He was a teacher, and he disappointed him. So Jesus said, it's as you said. And Judas departs. The disciples thought Jesus had told him, go get some more food or go give some money to the poor. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after he broke it, he gave it to the disciples and, take, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So with all eyes on him, he picks up a loaf of bread, he breaks it before them, and he says, This is my body. Now, he didn't mean it was his literal body. His body was reclining at the table with them. It's a symbol of his broken body. While these eyes were still on him, he took a cup of wine and said, This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it. And that word many there means you and me. It means Gentiles. It means everyone. It means all the nations. Now, covenants were ratified by the blood of an animal sacrifice. This covenant will be ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ himself, and it would replace the old Mosaic covenant of law. Ezekiel says this about it. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hooray! Hooray that the Jews can give up their striving and their works and their pride and their hopelessness. No more heart of stone. And when Jesus would reign in the millennial kingdom, the Jews who had tasted his salvation will abide with him forever. But remember that word many? It means that we will be a part two of this offer of a cup of salvation through his sacrifice. Though we're sinners, he offers us the same cup of unconditional love and forgiveness. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper today to remember that sacrifice. Then Jesus stood up, the disciples stood up, and they sung a hymn that they would sing at Passover, which is pretty incredible when you consider how rocky the path for Jesus is becoming. One person wrote this. Actually, it was Charles Spurgeon. Was it not truly brave of our dear Lord to sing under such circumstances? He was going forth to his last dreaded conflict, to Gethsemane, to Golgotha, yet he went with the song on his lips. It would have been one of the Psalms 113 through 118 because this was the praise psalms that they would sing at Passover. Maybe they sang words from Psalm 118 that would strengthen Jesus' hearts. Look at Psalm 118 on your verse sheet. Imagine Christ and the disciples singing this. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Then I think Jesus looked around the room. He looked at his disciples, the men he loved, and then they walked out into the darkness, the Mount of Olives. So as they walked by moonlight to the Mount of Olives, Jesus had another bitter herb for his friends. You will all fall away. 
from me because of me this night. And he quoted a prophecy for this fact, Zechariah 13. Then I said to them, oh, sorry, Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus, the shepherd, warned his sheep of the trials that were coming, that were going to scatter them that night. The night is getting darker and darker and the path is getting more and more dangerous. But the disciples hear these words and just begin to be totally upset again and deny them. It seems Peter proudly leads the protest. Even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. They, they could all deny you. I will never deny you. So proud. So sure of himself. So much didn't know his heart. As if Jesus ever said anything wrong to them. That's what's kind of interesting to me. You're making a mistake here, Jesus. We would never do that. Jesus says, you will fall away, Peter. This very night, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But I love it that Jesus also speaks words to try to encourage him here. He hopes they'll find strength in the truth that they would soon be with him in Galilee. He tells them he's going to rise as a victor. And he will go before them to their favorite place, their place of memories. Their place of miracles, their place of fellowship. And I love that because I thought how true this is in our lives when things seem to be growing darker and darker in the darkest of nights. He brings us the hope that he goes before us in victory. In our trials, our, here's what our hope is to remember. It won't always be night. He goes before us. He's going to take us back to the places in our lives of blessings. I can endure because he has a plan to bring those back, those places to bless me. Gethsemane, this path has led him so far through the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives is a place called Gethsemane, a garden. He would often meet here with his disciples Judas would know this place and that this would be a good place to find Jesus. Gethsemane means olive press. And here in the garden, Christ would be pressed physically and emotionally beyond what anyone else could bear. There would be tears. There would be anguish. There would be sorrow to the point of death. And such stress on his body that he would sweat drops of blood. This was unlike anything Jesus had experienced before on the earth. In the garden, he was becoming fully conscious of the weight of the burden he carried as the sin bearer for all of mankind. Within just a few hours, the cup of God's divine fury against sin would be Jesus' cup to drink. And though he knew he had to face this alone, he still wanted the disciples with him. In his hour of greatest need, he wanted those he loved to be praying with him. So he took the disciples to this little grove of olive trees, and he told them to pray here. Those olive trees are still there, by the way, if you get to go to Israel. And then he took Peter, James, and John, and they were probably just a stone's throw away from him, and he told them to pray there, and he went to pray to God. 
He wanted them praying because he knew they were going to face times of testing because of their ties to him. Look at verse 37. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, you couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the disciples who were never going to forsake Jesus couldn't even pray with him. But I want to give him a little slack because Luke says they were sleeping for sorrow. And even Jesus says, I know your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus himself kept praying to the point of exhaustion, and God sent an angel in the garden to strengthen him. His prayers were prayers of submission, prayers of obedience. And with the second and third prayers, we see him advancing in the realization that that cup could not pass him. In the first prayer, he says, let this cup pass me if it's your will. But in the second, he says, if I must drink this cup, thy will be done. Even in great agony, Jesus submitted to the will of his father over his own will. So the third time that he got off his knees, he walked boldly, decisively back onto the path God ordained for him with the cup of God's wrath in his hands. While he was still speaking in verse 47, Judas came with a great crowd with swords and clubs and chief priests and elders. The betrayer had given the sign saying, the one I kiss sees him, he's the man. And he came up to Jesus at once, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come to do. They came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, put your sword back into its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Don't you think I can appeal to my father? He'll send for me more than 12 legions of angels. How should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, If you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Sometimes I think we, we picture this as a small meeting in the garden. This was not a small meeting in the garden. This was a mob in the garden. 
This was the Roman soldiers, the temple guards. This was clubs, swords, torches and lanterns. And they knew the power of Jesus. And I think that's why so many of them came. And they were afraid. John tells us when Jesus said to them in the garden, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And with the power of his words, they fell to the ground. They were talking to the Son of God. The moment Judas coldly kissed Jesus, we see an example of God's unconditional love. He calls him friend. Do what you came to do. No one captured him. He was the willing, sacrificial lamb. So Peter striking the enemy was not what Jesus would have wanted. It was a pitiful move by Peter. Jesus said, I could have 12 legions of angels. That would be 72,000 angels. Right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus healed the man's ear. He exposed the Jews' hypocrisy here. You come to me in the dark, treating me like I'm a bandit. Daily I walked the streets. Daily I taught in your temple. But he knew this fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was the master of this chaotic situation, but the disciples fled anyway. Jesus is the master of our world, even when we're surrounded by this kind of chaos and confusion. There is a world outside there. If we turn the news channel on, we get a feeling of chaos confusion and it's pretty frightening and sometimes there's worlds surrounding us personally that looks crazy and chaotic but the last thing we need to do is flee from the presence of Jesus the last thing we need to do is strike out at someone else out of our fear what we do is pray knowing he's the master of this chaotic situation and believe he's got it in his hands. Jesus' path takes him now to Caiaphas, the high priest. He was going to have six unjust trials. The first one being a short trial at Annas, the former priest and father-in-law of Caiaphas. We're looking now at the trial of Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin are already there. They've been trying to find people to testify against Jesus. They were the Supreme Court of Israel. There were 71 members. The high priest presided over them. But they had no legal jurisdiction to have anyone executed. So you're going to see how they begged uh, Pilate, the Roman governor, to do that. The purpose of his trials was to find some legal basis to condemn him to death. Two witnesses had to be in agreement. This was Jewish law. They couldn't find any. They couldn't find even two false witnesses that happened to agree on the same thing. Then someone said, he said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, we know Jesus was talking about his body. But this accusation was one of the heaviest accusations one Jew could give against another. It incited Caiaphas. He demanded Jesus reply, and Jesus refused. Another prophecy, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But when Caiaphas said, are you the son of God? Jesus agreed. 
and quoted scripture. You'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Caiaphas tore his robes in horror, but I also think in glee because finally we've got him. This is blasphemy. You're saying you're God. You're equating yourself with God. And they began to hit him and slap him and spit in his face. Meanwhile, outside in the courtyard, Peter waited to see what his, would happen. And his predicted denials of Jesus began as he warmed himself by a fire. The fire probably lit up his face. A servant girl said, you were with him. Denial number one from Peter, I don't know what you mean. But he moves out of the fire wisely, goes to the entrance of the building, leaning against the wall. Another servant girl says, yes, I saw you with Jesus. Denial number two, Peter gives an oath. I don't know the man. Then the bystanders happen to notice he has a Galilean accent. And they say, surely you're one of them. In denial number three, Peter curses. And he swears. And he says, I don't know that man. And immediately a rooster crows behind him. And when he turns, he sees Jesus turn and look right at him. And it was probably the worst moment in Peter's life. With the crow of a rooster and the look of his Lord, Peter realized he had failed his friend that he loved, who had done so much for him. And Peter ran out into the dark, weeping bitterly. But in reality, this is another story of Christ's unconditional love for us because in our Bible, our letters from the apostle Peter, a man who became powerful and courageously built the church. And tradition says when he was crucified, when he was martyred, he asked to be martyred upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was crucified. He was forgiven. He was used by God. And the account of his denial reminds us of our own weaknesses and how we also find God's great grace in our lives. When we disobey God, we are in a sense denying God. When we ignore God, we are in a sense denying God. But when we confess these sins, we are forgiven by God. And he continues to use us in such great ways. This is the path of God's love into our hearts. Praise him. Let me pray. Lord, Lord, we recognize your deep love for us by your deep pain. I ask that we would remember that, seek you in ways where we can worship you as Mary did, worship you with the understanding of your sacrifice for us, we give you praise and glory today, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.